A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Five. There are parts of the United Kingdom which are a damn sight less safe than Turkey. The bit of Parliament is broken is the House of Commons. It's simply no longer doing its job of revising legislation. Those 2019 Tory voters, including the Red Wall Tories, they will determine the outcome of the next general election. I don't agree with the analysis that if reform didn't exist, the Conservatives wouldn't have a landslide defeat. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, a Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Planet Normal's proud to be British co-pilot. And you and I live, of course, in England, our green and pleasant land, according to that much-loved classic Jerusalem. But while Parry's tune was uplifting and Elgar's orchestration magnificent, Blake's original poem was, whisper it, very much satirical. There being little sense of Jerusalem in those dark satanic mills. Your column in yesterday's Telegraph, Alison, responding to the ghastly alkaline attacks in Clapham, South London, was also full of fire and brimstone, and rightly so, because there's righteous anger, the alleged attacker, the reason a woman's now in hospital horribly disfigured with life-changing injuries, was an Afghan man who hid in a lorry to gain a legal entry to the UK. His asylum claim was rejected twice, accepted only on a third appeal, that appeal coming after he'd been convicted of a sexual offence in 2018. A new YouGov poll shows that illegal immigration is now by far and away the most pressing issue for 2019 Tory voters, including those red wall Tories across the UK's regions who determined the last election. Yet new figures meanwhile show there were more illegal crossings across the channel last month than in January 2023, so much for Rishi Sunak's pledge to stop the small boats. And we're now told by officials determined to deport the deportation of illegal migrants that Turkey isn't a safe country, (laughs) despite it being a major tourist destination. With inflation now lower, there are signs the cost of living crisis is starting to ease for some, a development that Tories hope will help them as the Bank of England starts lowering interest rates ahead of a general election this autumn. But even if that happens and the UK escapes recession, the government needs to gird its loins and finally get hold of this immigration issue given the astonishing rise not just in illegal, but legal immigration too. If that doesn't happen and fast, then Nigel Farage's reform party, already outpolling the Lib Dems, could become a very potent political force indeed, splitting the Tory vote badly whenever the election happens, allowing Labour to chalk up a commanding parliamentary majority. It's a huge issue, Alison, one that's troublesome, and let's be honest, one which many of us would prefer not to talk about, but talk we must. But before we get into that, let's spare a thought for King Charles, a man who'd waited patiently to be monarch, and now, less than a year after his coronation last May, the palace has announced he has cancer. While the king's condition is stable and he remains in good spirits, what does this mean for the royal family? You know, Liam, this is the kind of story 
which obviously it's major news that the king was very welcomely open about a prostate problem. And clearly what happened is that I spoke to our Planet Normal friend, Professor Carol Sakura, one of our top oncologists, and Carol said that they will have sent a sample away, a routine sample after the prostate procedure from the urethra and some cancer cells will have been picked up. And it isn't prostate cancer, which obviously leads to speculation about where it is. Prince Philip, I know from a senior contact at a hospital, had bladder cancer in latter years, so it could be somewhere there. But the truth is, Liam, this is the kind of story which generates a vast amount of newsprint and coverage in which there is really only about three facts, I'm afraid. Yeah. It's a bit like that Rumpelstiltskin story where you're given a load of straw to spin into gold as a newspaper columnist. So we sort of earn our crust over this. I mean, it has left the royal family looking a bit fragile. Kate, the Princess of Wales, has not long ago had very major abdominal surgery and she's got quite a long recuperation. You've got the black sheep of the family, Harry, zipping across the Atlantic to be by his father's side. But yeah, I mean, obviously everyone is is very much hoping that this will be have been caught very, very early. It has led to some Quite not unkind, but a few sort of wry comments from readers and listeners about the fact that, you know, the king is lucky enough to get his cancer picked up early and commence treatment. We know from Professor Pat Price and from Carol Sakura that the UK in general is failing to meet its really not very good cancer target of 62 days from diagnosis to starting treatment. Now, that's a terrible delay compared to most developed countries. And so a lot of people, I think, are saying, well, you know, lucky him. But I think everyone is just united in in hoping that, you know, he'll be perfectly well. And that um, I actually wrote in my column, which we can put the link in the show notes, that uh, time for Princess Anne to take over. I've always thought she'd be a bloody great queen. <laughs> <laughs> I actually think that there's a, a strong case. We're really good at queens, Liam, our country, not so good at kings. So there was a pretty good, is it matrilinear, matriarchal line? There's a very good case for just having queens. I think Princess Anne is an absolute tremendous asset, both to her brother and to the country. I wonder what the rules are. We'll have to um, ask some, some of our royal experts on the Telegraph, of whom we have many, in order to change the male line. I think there'd certainly be a lot of public clamour for that. If you uh, Now you floated the idea, Alison. We'll see what happens. I think we shouldn't really dwell on this. I think we should immediately address this uh, question. We know that very few civil servants in our home office are interested in removing illegal migrants, but they really went a step too far this week, Liam, as far as your co-pilot is concerned, because they said that Turkey was not a safe country <laughs> to send migrants back to. And of course, as uh, regular listeners will know, I've recently adopted and imported indeed a, a Turkish street cat. And I said to Didi, <laughs> our home office is saying that your country is not safe to send migrants back to. And Didi said... Having the English lessons you've been paying for, they're clearly paying off. You, <laughs> you can talk to the boggy. This is a real cat, <laughs> listeners. This is an actual cat. But Didi said to me, have they been to Peckham? Because really, if you're talking about Turkey, a country which millions of British tourists visit, including me, every year with great pleasure. Laugh off you Welsh taffy. I'm a Londoner. You're, you're dissing. <laughs> Peckham's not my manner because I'm a North London boy, but I'm not having it. 
I'm not having it. It's gentrifying quite quickly, Peckham, these days. Last time I was there, I asked for some chips and I got something made out of kale, whatever that is. <laughs> there are parts of the United Kingdom which are a damn sight less safe than Turkey. I know we're laughing, but I think in a week when, as you said at the top, that issues about migration and asylum seeking were really brought to the fore by this absolutely horrific attack on a woman and her two little girls in Clapham in London. I think that the Turkey's not safe story perhaps reflects this astonishing divide now between civil servants, a kind of elite class of immigration lawyers, bien pensant people who are unwilling, questioning the wisdom of allowing thousands upon thousands of young undocumented males from shame and honour cultures quite often where they do throw acid. I think it was an alkaline in this case, but still absolutely devastating, causing devastating burns and blindness. And yet we are letting in now many thousands of undocumented young men from societies where women are treated as working class, treated as chattels, who if they stray or betray the male in question, in this situation, it's a guy called Abdul Azidi. And so the woman must be punished. And I'm afraid that I believe that that's what we saw last week. And as you said, Liam, in your introduction, this guy from Afghanistan, you know, came across, applied for asylum, rejected, applied again for asylum, rejected, then committed a sexual offence. And actually, the Home Office guidance says that offences which cause serious harm should prevent a person from being granted asylum. But Azidi, in this case, was able to out-victim any potential victims by converting from Islam to Christianity. So at the third appeal for his asylum claim, the tribunal judge focused on the fact that his recently acquired faith, some might say it was a bit rapid and cynical, would place him at risk from the Taliban. And (laughs) honestly, I did write a furious column. I'm just lost for words here. What the hell is going on? We actually have an entire industry, immigration, refugee industry, which is seems to me to be dedicated to promoting the cause of asylum seekers, in many cases bogus. And the government, all of these people, not putting the safety of British people first. You know, over many years, I've spoken to many civil servants, including very senior civil servants, some of whom are good friends, some of whom I was at university with and so on. And some of them have said to me almost boastingly, I didn't come into public life, I didn't come into the civil service to help ministers deal with immigration issues. They just don't want to touch it, even if it's evidently illegal immigration, and even if it's happening at a pace now, which is clearly worrying vast swathes of the population. You know, Alison, as we were discussing earlier this week, there's a YouGov poll out now mm. showing that for those 2019 Tories, immigration and asylum is now 20 points clear of the economy as the top issue yeah. for those voters. And you've made the point many times that those 2019 Tory voters, including the Red Wall Tories, traditional Labour voters who went Tory to back Boris, in the regions, they will determine the outcome of the next general election, if not reform the Farage Tice party that is gaining massively and becoming hugely important in British politics, consistently now out polling the liberal 
Democrats. And even if they don't get many seats or even any seats under our first-past-the-post system, they could knock the Tories off the top in many, many constituencies, allowing Labour through. And I think that could be a major dynamic in our election coming up. You know, it strikes me that there is now a real problem. And reading your column in The Telegraph on Wednesday, it reminded me of a conversation I had with Paul Staines, who runs the website Guido Forks, the really influential, extremely successful website. And whether you agree with Paul Staines, Guido Forks or not, everyone wants to hear his political analysis because it's always sharp and it's often bang on the money. And Paul said, this could be a Willie Horton moment. And what does that mean? It seems to me this could be that Willie Horton moment that Paul Staines, Guido Fawkes is talking about. Willie Horton was a convicted murderer in the US who was a subject of major publicity during the 1988 presidential campaign when George Bush won was squaring up against Michael Dukakis. Now, Michael Dukakis was the governor of Massachusetts, of course, and Willie Horton had committed violent crimes while he was on furlough from prison where he was serving a life sentence without the possibility of parole for murder. But he was released at the weekend as a part of the Massachusetts furlough program, which was overseen by Dukakis. And that was when this issue really punched through and the Republicans, Bush's Republicans, really went for it with attack ads. And it certainly gave Bush a bump in the polls. And the issue broke through among the broader public. Now, of course, here you've got the Tories can only blame themselves. This yes. is not as if, I mean, Labour wouldn't dare to attack the Tories for being too soft on immigration because most of their own backbenchers will go completely bananas and a lot of their core votes. But it could be a moment when this immigration really punches through for the public, this issue that you've been writing about a lot, that we've been talking about a lot on Planet Normal. And we've been talking about it, haven't we, in, in economic terms and in non-incendiary terms in terms of statistics and the numbers and crikey, look at legal migration this year. It's the same as the population of Leeds, which is one of the biggest cities in in the UK, certainly in the top five or six, depending on your definition. And yet now you have the incredible connection between a woman and her two daughters who have been attacked viciously with life-changing injuries Mm. and somebody who is accused of this crime, who is himself an illegal migrant, who was then granted asylum at the third time of asking. And before he was given that right, he actually committed a sexual offence here in the UK. And a lot of people are going to look at this and think, hang on, I'm a decent person, but this is mad. A lot of people, and you again highlighted this in your column, are going to question the role of various members of the clergy with their handbooks for how to help asylum seekers. Now, no one's saying that there shouldn't be Christian charity. Of course they're not. And no one's saying that some people don't have a legitimate claim to asylum. But when there's a connection made, a factual connection made, not just in this case, but in other cases too, there's been a string of them with illegal migrants granted asylum, then committing horrendous crimes. Mm. It not only tears at the social fabric, it also really calls into question the government's ability to control our borders, which scares a lot of ordinary people. However welcoming they are, however liberal-minded and generous they are, to the idea of immigration in the round. That's right, Liam. We also have this sort of 
patronising the virtuosi class led in the House of Lords by the Archbishop of Canterbury, who during the debate on the Rwanda bill was, you know, lecturing the country on the Christian need to welcome the stranger and accusing those of us who want to stop illegal migration of shrill narratives that all who come to us for help should be treated as liars, scroungers, or less than fully human. Now, I would say that that poor woman who is lying heavily sedated in a hospital probably has lost her sight, will never be able to show her face again as this wicked man still on the run, fully intended. She was to be punished. And the Archbishop is saying that we are see people as less than fully human. My argument is that why are they not seeing the British people and the victims of men like this guy who in no way represents Western values? Do you know, Liam, I often think about this. If you said to me, who should we be offering asylum to? I would choose Afghan girls because they are not allowed to go to school. They are not allowed to go to university. They are the victims of a vicious patriarchal Islamist society. And yet here we are, offering refuge, an entire immigration industry, spending taxpayers' money, making appeal after appeal when asylums are denied to young men from Afghanistan. I mean, it is the working definition of insanity. And then we have this simpering breed of particularly you you and I have talked about this, haven't we? These absolutely frightful so-called conservative women like Gillian Keegan, who on Sky News told Trevor Phillips, who raised the Clapham attack with her, and she said, it's not really to do with asylum. (laughs) What is it to do with? It's just politically inept and tinnied and dismissive and also really quite offensive to the people laying in hospital with life-changing injuries and their relatives. Oh, and yes, and we had one of our bet noirs, Caroline Noakes on Newsnight, just trying to immediately move on to microaggressions against women. And you do wonder what sort of gilded, bubble-wrapped world these people exist in, that they're not really alert to the fact that lots of people don't want their children exposed to people like that. But yeah, I mean, I think it's a great condemnation of the church, but of the judge at the tribunal, all of these different people in this chain. And I think that, as you say, Liam, I think there is mounting anger about the fact that we have not just the Conservative government, which has failed to do something about it, but the the Labour government led by a man who was himself a human rights barrister and caused some of this trouble in the first place. I desperately want these holes in our immigration system to be plugged. So where appropriate and judiciously, we can show compassion to people who are genuinely seeking asylum, which is an important role that the UK has to play. But this undermines public confidence so much that it makes it more difficult for politicians to defend the very asylum system that a lot of the people who are thwarting the deportation of illegal migrants say they so want to preserve. And the Tories are going to have a real issue, I think, around immigration when these by-elections come up, of course, on February the 15th, which we've been highlighting here on Planet Normal for a while. And now they're upon us in Kingswood in South Gloucestershire, that's Chris Skidmore, who resigned, the former environment minister, and Wellingborough, Northants, where Peter Bone has been asked to step down. He denies any 
wrongdoing and reform. We should really talk about reform. They've got two very credible candidates. They've they got have. Rupert Lower, former MEP in Kingswood, and they've got Ben Habib, former Planet Normal guest, just a few weeks ago in Wellingborough. How do you think reform will do in those two by-elections, Alison? Well, I'm a huge admirer of Ben, and I've been on the record saying that if I lived in Wellingborough, I would be voting for reform. Ben is a true conservative. (laughs) So we now have this extraordinary thing happening, Liam. I mean, in Wellingborough, the poll yesterday showed that the Tories were 19 to 1 against winning and reform only 8 to 1 against winning. So this, you know, something really potentially seismic could be happening now. And I think that they could do well. I'm not sure if they can win, but it will be enough to, well, the Conservatives should certainly have have a scare because, as we've often said on Planet Normal, it's saying this way in advance of most other people, that it's really being determined now by Conservatives not turning out. And I don't agree with the analysis that if reform didn't exist, the Conservatives wouldn't have a landslide defeat. I think they're perfectly capable of succumbing to a landslide defeat all by their useless selves, really, is the truth. But what we're seeing, Liam, and very interestingly this week, we saw the launch of something called Popcorns or Popular conservatism headed up by Mark Littlewood, Liz Truss, and and some leading figures. But what I'm quite intrigued by co-pilot is we've now got, interrupt me if I'm leaving anyone out. So within the conservative movement, we've got Popcons, Natcons, ERG, CRG, the Northern One, the John Hayes one that Priti Patel and Boris are involved in, the new Conservatives. So essentially, we seem to have got more Conservative pressure groups within the Conservative Party, not to mention Reform and Reclaim and SDP, who are pressing from the outside. And what what unites all of these groups is a massive frustration with the fact that the government has basically deserted Conservative values. I think Liz Truss's group, certainly the Growth Commission, has got some pretty good economists on it, chaired by Doug McWilliams and Shankar Singham, two credible people. I think they have been doing some good work on economic policy, and I've been following their work closely. But the broader group that she's been heading, it has been shedding members. Ranald Jai Wardner, a former Environment Secretary, very promising, talented, upcoming MP. He has left the group uh, as has Simon Clark, the former cabinet minister. So it's basically now her and Jacob Rees-Mogg, aided by Lee Anderson, the, the Ashfield Tory MP, of course, uh, the plain speaking GB News man. And this acronym soup of all these Tory groups, it really does point to a party that is desperately fighting to redefine itself yeah. when it should be uniting to go into an election. The Tories are behaving as if the election has already been lost as if they've already been hammered. And the public is picking up on that. And that's what all these ginger groups demonstrate, the fact that there is no real intellectual coherence, let alone policy grip or leadership. And you do get the sense that a lot of MPs are resigning because they think their seats are a lost cause. Mm. You know, high profile just this last week, Kwasi Kwarteng, the former chancellor, has stepped down. You know, fair enough, talented bloke. I'm sure he'll do very well as, as, a, as a writer, a consultant, and all the rest of it. But it takes something when you know somebody who came into politics so young and so bright-eyed and bushy-tailed is leaving his cabinet career really defined by such a short period as chancellor. That can't be very satisfactory. But he must be making calculations that the Tories aren't going to be back in power in any meaningful sense for you know quite a long time. 
It may be, though, there may be some reprieve on the horizon when it comes to by-elections because we've got the Rochdale by-election. Yeah. Do keep up at the back, listeners. We've got the <laughs> Rochdale by-election on the 29th of February, a leap year by-election. And it may not be a leap of imagination. You see what I did there? Ah, uh, very good. To say that the Tories could do quite well here. Why? This is a by-election sparked by the death of Tony Lloyd, a much-loved local Labour MP. And it is very much traditionally a Labour seat. But the Tories last time round did get 30% of the vote. And what's happening in Rochdale could be a carbon copy of what happened in my old manor of Bethnal Green and Bow when George Galloway, the former firebrand left-wing Scottish Labour MP, who is, of course, extremely pro-Palestine, very knowledgeable about the Middle East, has spent a lot of years in the Middle East analysing the situation in Gaza and so on. He stood in Bethnal Green and Bow and he got a huge amount of support from the local Muslim community because of his support for Palestine. Mm. And that managed to unseat Una King, who was very much a sort of uh, poster girl. Blair Wright, wasn't she? Labour frontbencher, very, very talented, very nice person, actually. I, I, I know her personally, but she was trounced by Galloway because he could harness the Muslim vote in Bethnal Green and Bow off the back of her support for Israel. And the same thing is happening now in Rochdale. There are polls now showing from Salvation, I think, that whereas traditionally in 2021, as recently as that, 85, 86% of Muslims voted Labour. It's now down at 60%. And there are signs that in Rochdale, such is the, the fervour among the Muslim community against the Labour Party, because Keir Starmer has been very, very instinctively supportive of Israel. There could be a backlash. Galloway could take advantage of that, and it could allow the Tories to come through at Rochdale. It's a really, really long shot, but at the very least, they're not going to get as hammered in Rochdale as they are going to in the other by-elections. I think it's quite alarming. We we are seeing a putative Muslim party. I've been sent some emails about that. And I think that this Muslim party, which, as you say, Liam, is dissatisfied with Starmer's so far quite, I think, admirable stance, you know, refusing to speak out against Israel. And so there's immense frustration boiling over there. And they, I think there are probably about 60 to 70 constituencies where Muslim candidates could do well. And a Muslim party would, of course, perform the same function or irritation for Labour that reform is now performing for the Conservative Party, which is to say that it wouldn't always necessarily win a seat, but it could certainly take votes away. And running alongside that, I think that it's very telling that two politicians I admire hugely at the moment are Suella Braverman and Robert Jenrick. And isn't it ironic, Liam, that these two former ministers, Jenrick was immigration minister, Suella Braverman was obviously the Home Secretary, and they are now effectively performing the role in government, well, outside of government, they are being anti-immigration activists from the back benches. And reading a piece that Suella Braverman wrote in the Telegraph this week, where she was calling for powers to ban those relentless pro-Palestinian marches we've seen through London with the Metropolitan Police not intervening when very inflammatory chants are being made. But I think what ties everything together that we've been talking about this part of the show is the fact that you have had Priti Patel, Suella Braverman, Jenrick, 
quite a lot of people who have been unable to get the government's policies on this issue to be enacted. So this comes against something that Liz Truss said at the launch of the popcons, which is that ex- left-wing people or left-wing extremists, as Liz Truss described them, have basically taken control of certain institutions, certain areas of government and of society. You know, we also saw Dominic Raab being chucked out for bullying, open quotes, close quotes, which seemed to mainly consist of him asking people if they could possibly do their job and then throwing a pret-a-manger tomato a bit noisily into a paper bag. So I think we've seen, as we come towards the end of 14 years of Conservative government, the big issue really, as Liz Truss articulated it, is even if you've got a Conservative government, is it possible to get Conservative policies? If you're finding this podcast interesting, you may also like Ukraine, the latest. Every weekday, The Telegraph's leading journalists bring you the latest news and the most informed analysis of President Putin's invasion of Ukraine, from our newsroom in London and from the ground. The Russian machine has been ground to a halt now for well over a week, and that is just staggering. NATO has to act now. It has to do more than it's currently doing. Otherwise, in this Ukrainian MP's words, you'll have to evacuate the whole continent. One video that we found to be incorrect was bomb squads seen in the Donbass region. The metadata of this clip shows that it was created in 2019, not today. Search Ukraine, the latest, in the same place you're listening to this, and click follow so you don't miss an update. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. While many comment on the state of the Conservative Party and the government more generally, few know the party as well as former Cabinet Minister Lord Michael Forsyth. Elected to Parliament in 1983 as MP for Stirling, Michael Forsyth entered government under Margaret Thatcher as Minister for Scotland, before serving as Minister for Employment, Home Affairs and finally Secretary of State for Scotland under John Major. A proud parliamentarian, he entered the Lords in 1999 and has since chaired the Economic Affairs Committee of the Upper House and currently leads the Association of Conservative Peers. Respected across politics for his incisive analysis and detailed grasp of policy, Michael Forsyth remains a highly influential figure within the Conservative Party, whose views on Scotland, on parliamentary procedure, on tax and many aspects of finance have been sought and heeded by successive Prime Ministers. Inviting him onto Planet Normal, I started by recalling a recent conversation we'd had, which I was keen to explore. I met you in the House of Lords recently and you mentioned to me that in your view, Parliament is broken. What do you mean by that? I don't think Parliament as a whole is broken. Everyone talks about the House of Lords and the need for reform. The House of Lords is actually working perfectly well and doing a great job. The bit of Parliament is broken is is the House of Commons. It's simply no longer doing its job of revising legislation and 
huge slabs of legislation come up to the House of Lords, which have never been debated in the House of Commons, never been considered, amendments tabled by members of the House of Commons, by MPs, are not able to be considered because every piece of legislation is timetabled or guillotined and no time is set aside for proper consideration. And this gives enormous power to the executives. And if we didn't have the House of Lords, there would be no proper scrutiny of that legislation. I mean, just to give you an example, in the last session prior to the King's speech, there were nearly 8,000 amendments tabled in the House of Lords. And every single one of these amendments can be debated and who's ever moving them can move them. Sometimes it's quite tedious. I mean, I can think of one Liberal peer who tabled 111 amendments to one piece of legislation. And we go through them line by line, which is why the House of Lords sits for longer than the House of Commons. In the House of Commons, it's almost impossible for amendments to be considered because of the timetabling. And so you have this great sausage machine in the Commons driven by the executive and no proper scrutiny. And in the end, the government, in the last session, the government tabled two and a half thousand amendments in the House of Lords for consideration in the unelected chamber. It's just broken. And also, if you look at legislation, increasingly the executive put into bills Henry VIII clauses, which basically allow the government to use secondary legislation or even executive action to change the law and not be subject to proper scrutiny. You are somebody who's been around politics for a long time. You came into Parliament as Member of Parliament for Stirling in the early 1980s. You were a member of the government under Margaret Thatcher. You were, of course, um, a Cabinet Minister, Secretary of State for Scotland under John Major. Let's take the long view here. What's different now than back then? Why is it that the House of Commons is, in your view, sending legislation to the House of Lords that, quite frankly is a mess. Because it's just not doing its job. The House of Commons is not just doing its job. And also, uh, I think a lot of members of Parliament aren't actually clear about what they're there for. I mean, in my day, it was very, very unusual for a bill to be timetabled, i.e. for it to be guillotined, for the amount of time from consideration to be limited. The finance bill, for example, was taken on the floor of the House. So all MPs could take part in it, you know, took a very great deal of time. And in committee committees, each bill was considered line by line. That no longer happens, and it's so obvious, and you end up with very badly drafted legislation. And also the machinery of government itself. You know, in my day, there was very careful control over the drafting of legislation by the parliamentary draftsmen. There were things that you were not allowed to do. You would not, for example, be allowed to use legislation as a kind of poster board for, for policy reasons. And um, even the titles of bills would be carefully controlled. But now legislation is just put on the statute book and a lot of it not even implemented as part of a political process. And the ability of MPs to hold the executive to account is limited. And then the other thing is the number of ministers. If I think back to, say, the Department of Transport, which in those days had British Airways, British Rail, National Freight, all owned by the state, and all of them had to be privatised. And there were two ministers in that department, Ken Clark and Norman Fowler, and they did it very well, thank you very much. Now there are five ministers in that, that department with very little to do compared to what happened before. Or if you take the DHSS, it had five ministers. Department of Health and Social Security, as was. Yes, which was then split into two departments. But as one big department, it had five ministers. 
Now, if you take the two departments that make up what was the DHSS, there are 12 ministers. In fact, we've ended up uh, with so many ministers, 95 in the House of Commons, that because there's a limit on the total number of ministers at 109, that means that there's no paid places for ministers in the House of Lords. And being a minister in the House of Lords is much tougher than being in the Commons because on the whole, people don't make political yabu points. They they actually know what they're talking about and they grill the ministers. And ministers at the dispatch book in the House of Lords are there to answer not just for their departments, but for the government as a whole. Now, a third of them are unpaid as a result. There are no ministers of state who are paid in the House of Lords. And indeed, one minister of state was forced to take demotion to parliamentary undersecretary of state in order to receive a salary. Now, I thought we left behind the idea that you had to have private means to be a government minister in 1906. Why is this happening, Michael? Why are there so many ministers? Is it a way for the government to try and control parliaments by having more people on the so-called payroll, more people who almost always will go through the government lobbies for any contentious piece of legislation. Exactly right. It's an abuse. As is the creation of all these other bodies like trade envoys, increasing the number of vice chairman of the party. It's a way of making it easier for the government to get its business through. Now, my view, I even thought it when I was a minister for 10 years, is, you know, accountability to Parliament actually results in you doing a better job. If you can kind of just push things through without proper debate and scrutiny, you will end up making big mistakes. And I think that accounts for, you know, some of the things that have not been a a huge success. And then there are a whole range of areas now. We've created all these next-stepped agencies and quangos who have a life of their own and are completely unaccountable to ministers. And you've seen the most spectacular example of that in recent days with the scandal of the post office, where the leader of the Liberal Party, who was the minister at the time, refused to meet the post office workers. And he said, well, I wasn't told what was happening and it was arm's length. Now, I have some sympathy for that view. We've created all these bodies which have their own budgets, which are campaigning, and for which ministers are in theory responsible and have to answer But actually, there is no direct accountability and ability for them to effect change. As a sort of policy-oriented journalist, somebody who tries to get into the details of legislation, the quality of what the committees of the House of Lords do, the investigations, is often far, far higher than the equivalent Commons committees. For instance, um, if I may say so, under your chairmanship, the Lords Economic Affairs Select Committee, full of some of the best economists that this country has appointed on merit, if you like, for their academic and intellectual preeminence, did some really penetrating inquiries. I don't see that happening in the House of Commons. That's my experience. Could you give a defence of the House of Lords? In order to work out whether it should be elected or not, you you should think, well, what is its purpose? And its purpose is simply to revise legislation, to look at it and say to the House of Commons, are you sure you've got this right? Even if the House of Commons is in the wrong, at the end of the day, they're the elected House and they will decide what happens. The House of Lords are not going to block legislation. It's about, look, we've looked at this and, uh, you know, what are you going to do? Now, the notion that if you had an elected House, this would be better. Well, first of all, some of the you know real expertise which exists, which certainly was on my committee, I take no credit for that, they're not going to stand for election. And by the way, you know, there's no one more 
political than me, but I wouldn't stand for election to the House of Lords. What would I do? Knock on people's doors and say, vote for me. I'm good at revising <laughs> legislation. And by the way, I won't be able to do anything to make this happen because we will defer to the elected House. Now, if I'm standing as an elected member, I'm going to knock on the doors and I'm going to hear, you know, I can't get a GP's appointment or whatever. If I'm in an elected house, I'm going to raise hell to make sure that happens. So I'm going to be in conflict with the House of Commons. So the House of Commons will lose its authority as the primary decision maker, and we will end up with conflict between the two houses. And then those people who say, ah, well, yes, but at least you'd be elected, the advocates of elected House of Lords want to have a PR system. Proportional representation system, yeah. Yeah, so you would have difference between the standing of the parties in both houses. And under a PR system, a proportional representation system, what matters is how high you are on the party list. So the power goes to the parties and to the executive. So it would actually reduce accountability. And the only accountability, it seems to me, effective accountability that we have in Parliament at the moment resides in the House of Lords as it is. Now, there are some people, you know, who, you know, don't pull their weight in the House of Lords. There are reforms we could make. We could reduce the size of the House of Lords and all kinds of things. House of Lords wants to do that, but the government refuses to provide time for us to do so. Now, you are a proud Scot, Montrose-born, steeped in Scottish politics. So let me ask you this. What role do you think Scotland and the vote in Scotland is going to play in the upcoming general election? You must have thought about that quite carefully. I think the SNP are a busted flush now. And I think there is real anxiety in Scotland about the future. We gave the Scottish Parliament, uh, you know, I was against, and I ran a campaign in the late 90s against the tartan tax, because I thought if the Scottish Parliament was set up and it had tax raising powers, you would get a differential tax situation between north and south of the border. And that is exactly what's happened. So people north of the border are paying much higher taxes. The the effect of that is it's much more difficult, particularly in industries which are highly paid, like financial services or gas and oil, to, to retain staff and recruit people. So I think people are getting worried. I think the SNP have been a disaster in terms of the delivery of policy. When I was Secretary of State, this is pre-devolution, we were miles ahead of England in terms of the number of school leavers who got good A-level equivalent results. We were 10% ahead of England, and now we're 10% behind. And we've slid down in Scotland, a country which was noted for having high standards of education. We slid down the league table because we've not carried out the reforms which were done in England. So I think the SNP are going to pay a high price. I think a lot of people are going to vote Labour. I think people will vote tactically. I think it will make it much tougher for for the Conservatives and easier for Labour to get a majority. Uh, While the SNP was so dominant, um, people who did not support the Conservatives didn't really see an alternative way of getting a Conservative government. So I think the fact that the SNP are collapsing and Labour is doing well will actually put the whole issue of independence and a referendum on independence, which of course we've done off the agenda. And as a unionist, I welcome that. Michael, Tell me about the Conservative Party from where you're standing. You have incredibly long experience of the party. You are the chairman of the Association of Conservative Peers. You're astonishingly well connected across both houses of Parliament. I've seen that for myself. Does the state of your party at the moment worry you, depress you, 
frighten you? It makes me weep because it's not just about the Conservative Party, it's about the country. I mean, the country has got huge problems, huge problems which will only be resolved if we're able to get our economy growing again. And, you know, as a Conservative, I believe uh, that in Conservative policies, um, and I see factionalism in the House of Commons, which is damaging us. The behaviour of some colleagues is reprehensible. I cannot, when I got into the House of Commons, I just could not believe that I was there. I was a member of the House of Commons. And even now, when I go to the House of Lords and walk past the House of Commons, I feel a little bit of imposter syndrome. I mean, you know, what a privilege. And the idea that people would give up their seats in the House of Commons because they thought they should be going to the House of Lords, I just cannot comprehend how good people could behave like that. What about this idea that the Tories should change horses again before the next general election, get rid of Rishi, have a third unelected prime minister, have the sixth prime minister in eight years? I did not vote for Rishi, but uh, I mean, I would walk over broken glass for him because he is trying to do a decent job. He is the leader. We really need to change the rules for electing the leader of the Conservative. You only need 15% of the parliamentary party to spark a, a leadership. It's mad. Mad. You know, at the risk of upsetting a lot of colleagues, I also think we need to, as a Conservative Party, we need to do something about our candidate selection because, quite frankly, we have selected some people who haven't got clarity about the responsibilities and duties that come from being a member of Parliament. It's not a game, it is about the nation's business. Actually, in the House of Lords, we have one Conservative family, and when I hear people talking about five Conservative families, I think, for goodness sake, you know, get your act together and support the Prime Minister. Being in a political party means that you have to go along sometimes with things that you don't really entirely agree with, because that's that's how you do politics. It's, and sometimes it's not just within your party, sometimes in the House of Lords, sometimes it's, it's cross-party. But you have to be absolutely focused on the fact that you're there to do the best for the country. And I think, I don't know whether it's social media that has done this, but there's just a bit too much ego and a bit too much nasty, not evidence-based policy and factionalism around. And if we don't get our act together, we're going to pay a very high price. Finally, Michael, what's going to happen with the government's Rwanda legislation in the House of Lords? What should happen? It goes back to what I was saying about the House of Lords is doing its job. And what will happen is that we'll have a few late nights Of course, we sit for much longer hours in the House of Commons. There will be lots of amendments. These will be sent back to the House of Commons. I guess the House of Commons, if they're wise, will accept some and reject others. Or if they reject all of them, they'll go back to the House of Lords. In the end, the House of Lords will accept the primacy of the elected House so that the government will get its bill. And a wise government will listen to the debate. Although I do think, you know, there are some elements in the House of Lords which might just put a little touch on the brakes. I don't really welcome seeing the Archbishop of Canterbury moving amendments and taking a high-profile matter on something which is a a core thing for the government. I noticed a former member of the Supreme Court who played a, a big part in the Brexit row, I think casting a vote for the first time on an amendment to stop the bill getting a second reading, which is unheard of in the House of Lords. We do not do that. That's wrecking tactics, right? An unelected house shouldn't do that. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's rather strange seeing that coming from a former Supreme Court judge. But then she's new, so perhaps she hasn't quite grasped what the House of Lords is for. I believe the House of Lords is a great organisation. Of course it needs reform, 
But given the opportunity, we'd reform ourselves. Michael Forsyth, Lord Forsyth, thanks a lot for joining us on Planet Normal. Pleasure. You know, Liam, I really enjoy listening to when we have an old war horse on. <laughs> Don't call me a war horse. <laughs> well, no, I mean... He, he climbs mountains. He recently climbed Kilimanjaro. He's, he's a Monroe bagger par excellence. <laughs> I mean that someone who is battle-hardened, has seen it all, yeah. and yet is able to dispense wisdom without a sort of bristling party pre. I think politics has become a lot less pleasant. And I really think when we speak to people on the left and the right, people of the calibre of Michael Forsyth, that you're getting a really interesting insight. And I was particularly fascinated having not long ago spoken to someone I was at university with who was briefly an MP. And he said exactly what Michael had said. My friend was trained as a lawyer and he said he simply couldn't believe the lack of scrutiny of major bills. He said he just waved them through without having read any of the small print. And I think this does raise questions that we're asking ourselves all the time now is what is the calibre of the people who are governing us? I got to know Michael Forsyth, not so much when he was in the Commons, but when he was in the Lords, he became involved in investigations into the Mull of Kintyre crash oh, yes. when the RAF Chinook crashed back in 1994, something which I investigated extensively, as did Michael Forsyth and various other peers in the upper house. And by the way, a shout out, BBC Northern Ireland have produced a really fantastic two-part documentary marking the 30th anniversary of that crash, and it's available on the iPlayer, the BBC iPlayer, well worth a watch, not least because yours truly is in it from time to time. I think his words on legislation and the fact that Parliament, the Commons, has become like a, a confetti conveyor belt, to mix my metaphors, of legislation is really apt. In our generation, Alison, when we were students travelling, remember we had a camera and you'd have like 24 pictures or 36 if you were lucky. Yes. You'd think really hard before you took a photo and you'd frame it up and all the rest of it because, you know, you'd have to send it to the chemist and shell out loads of your money to get those precious physical photos back in those little envelopes with your negatives. Yeah. And so each photo, you really thought about the photo and it meant something and there was an opportunity cost of mucking one up. Today's generation of MPs, it's like rather than cameras that we used, single lens reflex cameras with physical film, this is the iPhone generation who can take as many photos as they want. It's digital legislation now rather than analogue legislation. And Parliament is spewing out legislation from the Commons, which is often a mess, as Michael Forsyth has said, and there's guillotines on it and the business managers in the Commons just waving completely many, many parliamentary conventions. And it's the Lords who have to clean up this mess. Now, many people will find the House of Lords absurd. But I have to say, as somebody who spent a lot of time there over the years, because the committees in the House of Lords are so much more interesting and high calibre their investigations than they are in the House of Commons. The people that staff them, the level of research, the quality of the questioning of the witnesses, because, of course, you have people there who are expert in their fields. And that's how they get those committees for economic affairs or digital communications or transport or whatever it is. They're not there just because they're party hacks. They're there because they're often experts who really want to try and shape legislation and the broader public debate. And we should have a shout out for the House of Lords. And I think it'd be terrible if 
Keir Starmer in some kind of populist gesture, just abolished it and replaced it with an elected chamber for the reasons Michael Forsyth said. There would just be endless parliamentary gridlock and I think people would become even more frustrated with politics. Now on to our listener emails. Your messages sent to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. We love to read your thoughts. The citizens of Planet Normal. Lots on the horrifying attack in um, Clapham. Ian describes himself as old school 60s copper when P-list governors were supportive and streetwise, unlike today's pathetic <laughs> rookies. He sounds like an extra in the Sweeney, doesn't he? He does, doesn't he? Regan. Carter. Yes. He, this is a man who you know he's got a moustache and a leather jacket. I sincerely hope so. Ian, write in. Say if you've still got your sideburns, love. <laughs> Ian says, like the others, I have been condemning the utter folly of allowing young unidentified men from misogynistic cultures to swan into England without let or hindrance. And Kate says, really spoke to me, Liam, women and girls are being put at risk by this massive influx of young men from God knows where seeking to take advantage of what some see as easy game. There are already known incidents of asylum seekers hanging around outside schools. The police are hopeless. The criminal justice system is hopeless. The border force is hopeless. And the Church of England appears to be colluding with this farce, a face full of corrosive chemicals for any woman or girl who steps out of line will become more commonplace every week pro Hamas protesters spout their bile and hatred towards Jews and Israel on the streets of our capital city and the police stand by and let them. Our government is pathetic. I'm ashamed, says Kate, of what my country has become. We should say for good order that even though Abdul Azidis has been named by the police as a suspect and the Met have released CCTV footage of him, he does remain a suspect for now. And I'm sure if he was around to say he would deny all wrongdoing, it's important that we that we say that. This is from Anna, not their real name. Dear Alison and Liam, I work as a professional trainer providing legal and technical training to environmental health officers, private sector housing enforcement officers from local authorities and surveying teams in social housing, among other services. Important work. Recently, I've been training staff from the Home Office whose job it is to assess the compliance of contractors such as Serco, Mears, Clearspring, who under the above-named contracts are tasked with finding and managing housing for asylum seekers. What's become clear to me is that these contracts are devouring a significant proportion of both social housing provider stock as it becomes void and properties that would historically be let within the private rented sector. It's the sheer scale that took my breath away. A senior officer advised me that the total number of properties under these contracts is now over 50,000 and rising. 50,000 plus homes that would normally be available to families looking for somewhere to rent and to live and often to get themselves off the local housing register. What's more, these contractors clearly advertise that they'll pay a landlord their full rental demand. In other words, if a property is a housing asylum seekers, the normal limits on local housing allowances go out the window. A fairly normal family looking to rent such a home might have to limit to what support they can get under universal credit to pay their rent as governed by local housing allowance and may have to find the balance out of their own limited means. Not so if the home is let to these contractors. They guarantee to pay full rent. This creates a clear incentive for landlords to take their stock out of the general rental market. Of course, in many cases, the contractors are placing multiple asylum seekers in what were family homes. 
And in normal circumstances, were a landlord to rent their property in this fashion, they may need a license to operate as a home in multiple occupation. The government's proposed to exempt any property let in this way from licensing for two years. Yet another incentive for landlords to take their property off the general rental market. This bill hasn't been passed yet and is subject to strong challenge by the profession. There's a hearing next week, as it will also attract the more unscrupulous landlords who will be exempt from regulation, as will the contractors. This is hugely unfair on good landlords who comply with licensing requirements. I know Planet Normal likes a good story to investigate, and this seems to be one that so far has flown under the radar. The Home Office proudly boasts it's reducing the demand for hotels for asylum seekers, but all it's doing instead is deflecting this demand and provision to the already stretched housing market and denying access to housing for thousands of ordinary citizens who need that housing. Kind regards, and do keep up the good work. Anna. Indeed, Anna, not her real name. Before we go on, Liam, let's just ponder that story. Anna, not their real name. The Telegraph News Desk is going to be looking into this. This is astonishing, Liam. This is coming back to a theme of the show, really, is the government, which wants to desperate to get the asylum seekers out of hotels, the thousands of people that they have left in, undocumented people, and now basically... I'm not even sure what the technical term is. You know about the housing market, but manipulating, uh, changing the rules, manipulating the housing market to get asylum seekers, illegal migrants into properties that should be available at a reasonable price to ordinary British families. And it's an absolute scandal. It is an absolute scandal. And we know that in recent years, housing benefit, the increase in housing benefit that social tenants use to pay for their accommodation in the private rental sector, those housing benefit increases have lagged behind massively increases in private rent. So a lot of vulnerable households have found themselves in substandard accommodation or very much at the mercy of their private sector landlords. And yeah, I recently did some films on GB News showing that even in housing associations, People are living with mould and asbestos and all kinds of really, really ghastly conditions. And this will only serve to, once again, highlight the real dearth of decent housing, decent accommodation, not just for you know nice middle-class kids who want to try and buy their own house like their parents did, but at the sharp end where there's real genuine human misery, where the bad quality of your housing isn't just about being cramped and having to share a room. It's about, you know, really affecting your health because the conditions are so bad. And obviously we checked out the bona fides of Anna, not their real name, before we read out this email. And it's clear that this person is extremely knowledgeable in their field and very much a frontline practitioner. So we'll wait and see what happens. But once this notion enters the political mainstream, then I do think it's going to attract a lot of attention and could even lead to changes in the rules because there'll be a lot of outrage about this. And this is from Angela, who was last week's Planet Normal mug winner. Angela says she was delighted, by the way, at the idea of getting a mug from us. And she said, you can tell the co-pilot, not only am I a plumber's daughter, I married an economist. Oh, my God, the parallels are uncanny. It must be my long-lost auntie, Angela, (laughs) from wherever she is. Glutton for punishment, (laughs) says Angela. I think you call that. All the best for your little Turkish pussy cat settling in. Thanks, Angela. She certainly is. She came with a lot more paperwork than most of the recent migrants, I have to say. And I love this, Liam. This is from one of our favourite contributors, 
Dave, the Planet Normal, window cleaning prophet. Hello, Alison and Liam, says Dave. Back again. I'm wondering if it's just me or are we all bragging about how crap our local services and crumbling infrastructure have become? Just a few observations I've heard cleaning windows over the last six months. The classic British character on top form here all around me. The boasting and one-upmanship is marvellous stuff. You may be guilty of this yourself. So this is some of the examples of the how crap is our country and one-upmanship from Dave. Our potholes are bigger than yours, featuring proud jokes that our town should be twinned with the moon. How long my wait time to get through to the GP surgery was. When you last received any post. Ambulance wait times. Oh, you were lucky. That was quick. <laughs> Burst mains flooding roads for weeks at a time. Laughing aloud at any suggestion that you might get a dental appointment. I was asked if we kept getting power cuts by someone in our next village and felt a bit deflated when I meekly replied, no. Sums it up, really, when you have the perverse feeling like you're missing out when things do work. <laughs> Thanks for being there every Thursday. Must grumble, says oh, Dave. God. Yeah, we've, we've gone from must and grumble, Halligan, to must grumble. Absolutely brilliant observations, Dave. You could be a national newspaper columnist spotting trends like that. And indeed you will be, because Alison will rip off your email and stick it in her column. <laughs> you can't deny it, Co-Pilot. You do it all the time. <laughs> I can't. I'm not denying it. <laughs> Final email from me. And this is Carl. I tune into Planet Normal every week on the drudgery drive up the A14 and onto the M6. I listened intently to your talk about the winter of 63 and the youth of today. I thought it was just me. I was born in the front bedroom of a three-bedroom council semi in 1969, the youngest of six. My brother recently told me, he was 13 at the time, that when I arrived, there were nine of us living in the house. That included my parents, my nana and six kids, ranging from 13 to me. There were no food banks, no central heating, no car, no holidays. I remember the neck curtains sticking to the single glazed, rusted and warped, crittle windows. My bedside glass of water with ice on the top, wearing a woolly hat to keep warm and putting my school uniform on in bed in the morning to keep warm. For a week or two at school in the late 70s, I was trendy. Luckily, my brother had a pair of drainpipe trousers and a button-down Ben Sherman shirt in the 1960s that were recycled for me. Madness and the scar movement arrived and I was cool. I've worked really hard all my working life, bettered myself, provided a great start for my children. I can't understand the lack of get up and go from people, the culture to blame everyone for one's own situation, the acceptance to not want to work or better yourself. Feeling old and a dinosaur. How do we, the soon-to-be senior generation, facilitate change? Great show. Thanks for allowing me to be a passenger. Kind regards, Carl. Carl, you sound like a man after my own heart. Huge similarities between your childhood and mine. We probably met each other down the park and took a few lumps out of each other. But, mate, we're born in 69. We're not the soon-to-be senior generation. <laughs> we're in middle-middle age. Carl, get a grip. <laughs> and on that bombshell that's it from Planet Hall for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason our flying refuge of reason views email of the week it's Alison's turn I'm going to overrule the normal guidance and we're going to give two Planet Normal mugs one to Anna not their real name for their absolutely fantastic email outlining the scandal of giving rental housing to 50,000 migrants ahead of British families. I hope that that was going to be a story, Anna, that we're going to um, keep Planet Normal listeners posted about. And of course, 
to Dave, the window cleaner, prophet of Planet Normal. So if Dave and Anna could please uh, email us with your uh, full names and addresses and we will get a most coveted Planet Normal mug in the post to you. I'd have to say, Dave, the prophet window cleaner, is up there with Brian the fisherman, the triangle dorsed eaters, <laughs> and Bob the Planet Normal bard and Robert Styler, all these Planet Normal citizens who have become minor celebrities of the podcast world here on Planet Normal. If you enjoy Planet Normal, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. There are lots of really great ones there and it doesn't half cheer the co-pilot and me up of a cold February night to read all the lovely things you've got to say. And a cold February morning when I'm putting on my school uniform in bed <laughs> like Carl did. Yeah, go down to the kitchen. Your mum's got the oven on and open to try and heat the place up <laughs> as we speed away from our beloved planet normal and the madness of planet earth comes back into view thanks as ever to our producers is bob richard casho and louisa wells stay safe and in touch with us and with each other until next week it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from him <laughs> <laughs>